0: Welcome to Stories From Every Day. I'm Liam Cosma, and this is Episode 3, Bird Dogs, the Jungle in Vietnam, Part 2. Thanks for joining me.
1: We would pull the pin on a grenade, drop it in the jar so the pin would stay there, and then screw the lid on. protesters there, uh, they had little bags of dog poop that they decided were we needed more than they did. But the public attitude was, you can never be a part of that Chinese city. You are defective.
0: Welcome again to Episode 3, Bird Dogs, the Jungle, and Vietnam, Part 2. This is the second part of my interview with Mike McGrath, a Vietnam veteran who was gracious enough to share some of his experiences during the war and afterwards. For this episode, we'll start off talking a bit more about his deployment experience before discussing what it was like coming home. In a lot of ways, it's heart-wrenching. As a young man coming home from a trying experience overseas, Mike was exposed to the angry emotions of a public displeased with the war effort. On top of that, there was little support for returning veterans and Mike found himself dealing with the emotional baggage of war with no one really to talk to. Over a lifetime of reflecting on his return from Vietnam, Mike has come to terms with what happened and has some incredibly insightful thoughts on PTSD and war in general. He has some I think, incredible advice for combat veterans and for a public hoping to help them cope. I really hope you enjoy it.
1: We knew that there were were people in the States that were protesting what we were doing. Uh, We we were disappointed that we weren't doing more aggression. We were Basically, we, a lot of us felt like we were doing nothing but playing defense. Hmm. And uh, there was a, a, a petition that came through that a lot of us signed that said we should invade North Vietnam. Uh, I found out years later uh, when I did go into OCS at 30, big mistake, uh, no, I did a year uh, as a junior in college, and I just didn't have the physical stamina anymore to, to to do my ten mile runs. Yeah, just didn't couldn't do it anymore. Not at thirty. Not I. I'd been out of the service for years, and uh, sitting behind a desk, and <laughs> I'm not going to keep up at thirty. With with that and with a bunch of nineteen twenty year olds, I just I just couldn't do the. I had straight A's in class, but I could not do the physical Mm -hmm. part. I'm just too old and decrepit, and so I uh, I resigned after a year. But uh, we we knew what was that there was stuff like that going on, but we. It was so far away from us that we pretty much ignored it. Uh, There were always reporters around. I mean, there must have been... I know I'm going to exaggerate. One reporter for every 100 troops. Mm. Uh, But they were everywhere. About every week we'd have reporters come through asking questions. And some of the questions they were asking were pretty... Negative. So a lot of us just took to hiding when they showed up. <laughs> we didn't want, want to get get in trouble because you never knew the, that you might actually say something that would offend somebody and then you'd be in trouble. Mm-hmm. So we just ignored them or, or avoided being around when they were. Uh, the one time I didn't was when this very pretty young lady and her camera crew were asking GIs to say hi to the folks back home. I said, hi, Mom, hi, Dad, and, you know, that sort of thing. And uh-huh. I, that was that was fine. But some of these people wanted to get you a real political. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think of the war? What do you think of the Appalachian baby killer, blah, 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 bark, bark, wolf, wolf. And I just didn't want to listen. was not involved in that I just I could not see myself getting political. Today I would have been in their face. Mm. But I'm 70 freaking years old. Yeah. I don't care. But when you're 20 years old you and you're an E4 in uh in an outfit that has more officers than enlisted just because of the nature of the beast, uh, you didn't want to make waves. Mm-hmm. And talking to these reporters was just not something that – we weren't discouraged. It was just a – it was a CYA. Hmm. You know about CYA? I'm familiar with the acronym. Okay.
0: Uh, Cover. Cover your something. Yes. (laughs) Appendage.
1: Appendage. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah. So – that was, that was me. There are other guys who didn't care, and they just do say whatever they wanted. But uh, I wasn't one of them. Hmm. Anyway. Uh, we can go in lots of different directions here, guy.
2: Hey,
0: I – anything you want to talk about? I, so I do, I do remember, and I wrote this down. I do remember when we talked the first time, you said something about grenades and glass jars – Oh. (laughs) And I was curious.
1: Okay. As to what led to that. Because when you're flying low and slow and you're an easy target, Mm -hmm. we decided that we needed some extra protection. So. We'd gotten rid of the pineapple grenades that they used to have in World War II in Korea, and we had the smooth ones like you have now. What we would do is we would take mason jars, you know, with the screw-on lids, Mm -hmm. and we'd pull the pin on a grenade, drop it in the jar so the pin would stay there, and then screw the lid on. And I would have a case of a dozen between my legs on the floor of the plane and when Captain Hawkins saw something and he didn't want to waste one of his big expensive rockets, he just had me start chucking grenades (laughs) out the window (laughs) and uh, uh, they made, you know, they were perfectly safe Mm -hmm. until they hit the ground and broke and the handle flew off and we'd have an explosion. So you could literally one time we 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 he had me dump the entire carton off the window. <laughs> and uh so there there's 12 grenades going down range. <laughs> what what did you see? What 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 did you see there? You know I honestly don't remember. He says he just said there's there's uh we got to get that, so I said, dump them, dump them. So I just took the entire box and threw it out the window. But normally, you know, we'd drop two or three. Um. But you know, grenades were cheap. Mason jars were easy to get, uh, especially when the folks that hunt back home would send them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's
0: that's funny. Did they ever ask what you're using the mason jars for?
1: No needed no, mason jars just yeah and not the big court ones just the pint ones mm-hmm. you know, just just big enough so the the grenade would fit in it and uh hey it was it was uh the best time delay fuse ever yeah <laughs>
0: that's i i'm actually amazed at the creativity oh we we
1: we got really creative uh I found out about a warehouse in Saigon that was filled full of stuff that had been brought over and had no allocation to anybody, and I found two Graflex XL cameras. These back in 67, 68 were about $600. Wow. Wow. This included the uh, the aluminum case and the lens, hundred millimeter Zeiss lens, used seventy millimeter film, and I found two of them. So uh, my major and I went down to Saigon. Uh, He wrote out a requisition for these things, and we got two of them. And I introduced him to the to the the colonel that I was getting my stories cleared through. That was. He loved that. And we spent a couple days there in Saigon, which he enjoyed. And uh, so uh, we stopped off in a train to our higher headquarters and dropped off one of the cameras there as sort of a bribe. And uh, then we head back up to to us, and I would take pictures of uh, 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 award ceremonies and uh, uh I took a lot of pictures of the countryside when I was flying, uh, and uh, I left it there when I left. Of course, it it, it belonged to the company, hmm. although I really wanted to take it home with me. I don't blame you. <laughs> oh yeah, that thing is worth a small fortune these days. Anyway, Uh yeah, we we would we would we would scrounge stuff and we would do things. Oh, I know. This thing used uh, flash bulbs the the replaceable kind Mm -hmm. you know not a strobe flash like we have now but actual flash bulbs single use and you throw them away well we found out that flash bulbs could be mounted in barbed wire with trip wires huh and these are, these are not the little tiny flashlight like the flash cubes or anything. These things are like that tall and about that big around. Mm-hmm. Big. What we would do, you know, we had the concertina wire around the, around the perimeter. You could set these things in with a little battery and put a piece of uh, aluminum foil between you and the flash bulb. and connect up a little trip switch. So if somebody was trying to come through, they could trip that, and that flash bulb would go right off in their face. And with the aluminum foil backing, we just take a piece about four inches on a side, just set it behind this thing. And uh, it would act as a reflector, so all that light would go downrange. And wouldn't completely destroy your night vision, but anybody coming in was gone. They had no night vision left at all.
0: Couldn't see anything.
1: And so, actually, yeah. they we figured out how to put these things together, and they became uh, pretty uh, pretty popular, especially with special forces a camps. Wow. Because we are so cheap. Yeah. You know, you could, you could. So I literally got, so I could, I would buy, buy, I'd requisition cases of, of flash bulbs and we'd sell them <laughs> and trade them. Used to, used to get, uh, uh, we'd trade them for food, uh, case of steaks from the old club, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. <laughs> Sometimes weapons. I got a. I got myself a, a, a 45 caliber grease gun that way.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: Now, weapons for for collecting or personal
1: use. Personal use. Yeah. That's cool. Oh, I have. A, I had a picture taken. I was a machine gunner, all too. I had a natural penchant for the M60. I don't know why. I couldn't. I couldn't shoot the M49 grenade launcher for for, for crap. But I was actually. I'm going to say I was a natural with the M60 because I could literally sight it in at 400 yards and three shots. I could no. hit the target. I, I just, it just came to me that way. I just, you know, it wasn't that I was practicing forever and ever. I just, it just was really easy. And I have a picture of me holding this M60 in Rambo style with 200 round belts, poncho via style, with that grease gun on a leather cord around my neck, with two 30 round magazines duct taped together, and my 45 on my hip. I mean, I could hardly waddle, let alone run anywhere. I had more ammunition, but uh, those were all my weapons. I was issued the uh, uh, the, the, the M sixty. Uh and it was uh you know, and I once a week I would take it out and clean it when I when I didn't get a chance to go to the range. And uh and I had the uh the grease gun and the uh the forty five, the old uh I love that forty five. I wish I still had one. Uh I collect guns, what can I say? Hey. I've got a few uh, older than the forty five oh. yeah i I guess I'm not uncommon in my uh fascination with uh with uh with guns mm-hmm. I an... don't think you are at all
0: <laughs> especially for for those who've served,
1: yeah yeah.
0: And at this point, we uh, took a short break for uh, Mike to get some water, and when we came back, I asked him to uh, talk about some of his experiences uh, after the war and and his uh, redeployment from Vietnam.
1: We were supposed to land at McCord, and uh, they the runway was closed because they were having an inspection. So we landed at SeaTac, and. Uh, this is in the summertime so you know Seattle in uh in the summer. Uh, it was it's, things are pretty hazy because it was pretty hectic uh you know when one day you're in 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 country and the next you're home. Right. Uh it's pretty fast. And uh some of us were pretty dirty. Uh so we landed at SeaTac. Uh there were a few protesters there. Uh they had little bags of dog poop that they decided were we needed more than they did. Hmm. I'm putting it nicely. Yeah. Um which missed me. Uh we got out of there as fast as we could, got onto uh buses and went down to Fort uh, uh Fort Lewis and they put us up in Some old World War II barracks. (laughs) Saw a lot of those. They still had a lot of them around when I was in. Uh, And they uh, uh, they checked us all out, got rid of anything that was considered contraband that they hadn't caught in country. And we all got uh, sent off back to... uh, uh, our home stations or home, uh, to our homes. Basically, we, we got, a uh, 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 we got leave. And, uh, so I caught, uh, I went back to SeaTac and got a shave and a haircut by the barber there at, uh, at the, uh, at the, at the, at the airport, which was really great because I'd been getting shaves by a uh, Vietnamese guy in, <laughs> in Vietnam who turned out to not be that friendly uh, during Tet. But uh, we had to find a new barber. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, when you got a guy with a straight razor yeah. up to your face and find out he he's actually working for the other guys. But it, I digress. I'm sorry. Uh, got a plane, uh, took a plane back to uh, uh, Southern California, Landed at, uh, uh, Ontario Airport, met my dad and mom, and the, uh, first thing out of my dad's mouth was, you need to take a bath, son. Hmm. My mom, of course, gave me a hug and said, Harold, shut up. Uh, so I got back home, and I needed a bath. I, I really did. I was pretty grungy. Uh. And uh, uh, then that afternoon, uh, uh, I got surprised by my girlfriend, who had been waiting for me, sort (laughs) of. And um, then we went out to the movies that night. And uh, she said, oh, there's a great new movie out. It's all about Vietnam. I want you to see it with me. Well, it, it happened to be the Green Berets. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. Uh, so the the night I got home from Vietnam, I'm watching, you know, people die. And uh, I got pretty upset. Uh, that was probably not the brightest thing I've ever done. Mm. Uh, I stayed around and uh, I tried to talk to uh, my folks about what it was like over there and... Uh, My dad didn't want to hear it. He never talked about his, and I wasn't going to either in his house. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every time I tried to talk to my mom about it, she'd start crying. So I pretty much shut up. Uh, It uh, was pretty much that way with most people. Uh, We just didn't have anybody to to talk to it isn't like now you know yeah you've, you've got there were no counselors for for, for returnees It just there wasn't didn't happen um so i had like a 30-day leave i left after half of it went to my next duty station uh and i had a hard time adjusting because uh I wasn't I'd spent an entire year with uh, hooch girls uh, who you know you'd pay them ten bucks a month and they'd take care of your linens and your uniforms and your bedding and change your bed. So you know when you when you live in, in uh, they were everywhere mm-hmm. all over the country. you know you, you, if you could get uh, uh, if the base would allow them to come on, there were women willing to do that sort of work. Now, they weren't there for any funny business. They mm-hmm. were there to work. Right. You know, they would they would take care of your clothes. And so I I wasn't real good at doing that. Uh cuz it just so but I, you know, I uh I spent about uh well, let's see. I got there in July of 68. I left in may sixty nine uh, got back and started look I went went home I wasn't married didn't have any job prospects so I went looking and uh, there were a lot of places you know because I'd done a lot of clerical type things that's what my mOS has said in personnel uh I was I was trained to run a personnel shop, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus all the other volunteer stuff, uh, the door gunner, the machine gunner, the observer and bird dogs. That that was all volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I found out later that all the observers were volunteers. Wow. <laughs> there was no place for them. It was just you know there are very few pr- professionally trained. Bird dog observers. Anyway, uh, it took me a while to find a place because, well, I'll put it this way. A lot of places said what you did in the military, as far as we're concerned, doesn't mean anything. Therefore, as far as we're concerned, you have no experience. Hmm. Uh, That happened a lot. I eventually found a job uh, with the county, uh, working uh, in a hospital, and I did that for years, and then moved up here to Washington, and uh, ran my own business for a while, that didn't pan out that great, Uh, (laughs) uh, another whole, the guy saw me coming, okay, what can I say, Uh, ooh, money southern california yeah he's got lots of money we'll jack the price up um and he did the uh finally got a job uh uh working for uh the secretary of state uh, but it took a long time to get over it uh, ended up in the hospital uh with ptsd uh You know you just when you don't have anybody to talk to and you try to talk to your wife and explain things and she looks at you with kind of a blank expression sympathetic but not really understanding what you're talking about and how you you just didn't have anybody that really understood it was Oh, you were over there. You were either, A, you were a baby killer or you were uh, 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 damaged in some way or, 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 or you were never just yourself. Mm -hmm. You were a result of what you had done or had done to you. And that was real hard to understand for a long time. And I still have trouble to to this day, forty years after it, I have trouble understanding how people can do that to you. Mm-hmm. It uh, I I've never been that way. I've 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 tried my best to to uh, to be kind to people and, and 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 do what I think is is right. So having that kind of attitude uh, is just foreign to me. You know, I, I weren't raised that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyway, that was in a nutshell, my, uh, my homecoming. You can extrapolate on that for hours. Yeah.
0: Out of curiosity, I mean, you mentioned the protesters coming home, um, and how, how they treated you, you know, upon arriving. Are there any particular other moments that stand out where you had experiences with protesters or people who
1: didn't appreciate what you were doing you uh did. yeah actually one of the things I did is uh while I was looking for work I went back to college went to a little junior college called San Bernardino Valley Union Junior College with 26,000 people there <laughs> in, in Southern California oh, my mouth is dry uh and I joined an organization called Chi Gamma iota, which is Greek for XGI. Hmm. And uh, for some reason, they made me president. And they were going to have a big protest—protest protest the war, protest the government, protest this, protest that. Blah blah blah. Bark bark. Woof woof. And this was the XGIs. No 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 no. Oh, we, the, we were the we were like a, we were like a group on campus. Oh okay, but. All these other organizations were going to have this big anti war protest. Okay. Well I was studying archaeology and anthropology at the time, and I had friends over at the local county museum. So I knew what I wanted to do and how to do it, but I needed their help. So I went over and I asked one of the uh one of the uh the directors of the museum for so I could borrow some of their uh their exhibit and what they did is they gave me half a dozen human skulls uh that they had in a in a repository
2: mm-hmm.
1: and lo- and it's some long bones uh like femurs on loan now these are all cataloged I signed out for them everything you know the whole bit, and I took them onto campus, and we had gotten a bunch of uh raw beef bones uh that still had meat on them. Mm-hmm. They'd been carved off, but they, they were fresh. So we created an exhibit with these human skulls and long bones and these bloody meat bones, and we had uh, uh, some signs in our little display, saying uh something about how you know this is the result of communism blah 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 and uh we sat out there and uh with our dark glasses on and our hats (laughs) because it was you know warm in southern california right and the meat started to get a little stinky Uh, (laughs) As meet Will in the sun. uh, As meet Will in the sun, Uh yes. And uh, quite a few people came by our booth, read what we had said, and said, are those real skulls? And I said, you betcha. And uh, we had to have the janitors come out and clean up people getting sick in front of our booth on more than one occasion hosing down sidewalks we made quite an impression (laughs) i would say so uh it was definitely different uh i probably couldn't get away with that now because these all happened to be the skulls of native americans oh wow uh there had been a huge dig over the course of many many years uh and these were just remains that they had in storage uh that they had not given back to the tribes. They were the county I was living in was San Bernardino County. It's thirty, over thirty thousand square miles. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest county in the continental United States. Yeah, Alaska has some bigger, but whose county? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the continental United States, it's the biggest. It's mostly desert, and they had archaeological digs everywhere and people would find bones and bring them to the County Museum hey we found these we don't know what to do with them but they're human what do we do they would take them uh, without provenance Mm -hmm. because they didn't want people to be wandering around with human remains right so they would take them as the county would became a depository of these sorts of things and I believe eventually they were all returned to various tribes and and buried appropriately. But this is long before those laws were in effect. Mm-hmm. So I could access that kind of thing. I couldn't do it again. But uh we we made quite a statement to uh to the college that, you know, maybe thing is things aren't exactly the way you have been told they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I'm actually rather proud of that demonstration that we put on for the un- undereducated. Yeah, war has consequences. Mm-hmm. And not only for the people that are living where the war is, but for the people fighting it as well. Mm-hmm. And this is the result of what happens. And people die. It's And it's it's real. It's We, yeah. we tried to make it as real as possible. Yeah. The bones are obviously cleaned right they're preserved they The human remains were very reverently taken care of. Nobody was playing catcher or anything like that. It was right. just they were there strictly to make a point right and then they were immediately they were taken out in the morning. they were brought back in that afternoon right They were not gone eight hours right, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Mm-hmm. But they were there, they made a point, and it made a very strong point with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people just got angry. But that's okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, adjusting was difficult because there was no... Well, for the first thing, we didn't know anything was wrong with us. Uh, But eventually when you're turned down for jobs that you know you're qualified overqualified for when uh when the uh the local veterans organizations look down on you which they did well you didn't fight in a real war like ww2 we got that a lot uh or you lost your war etc cetera, etc cetera. um that changed now Vietnam veterans are running those organizations, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, certainly different, uh, was one of the reasons why the Vietnam Veterans of America, the VVA, was founded was because of the attitude toward a lot of, toward us by a lot of the service organizations, uh, not necessarily the national, but the, the local chapters. Uh, we just weren't welcome. Uh my dad, World War II vet, he didn't want to hear about it. And he's the only one, he's the one closest person I know who'd actually been in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, who might have an idea of what I was talking about. My mom didn't. She, you know, uh, I didn't have any friends who'd been over there. Uh, there were, in my generation, there were over 30 kids in my dad's immediate family with his brothers and sisters. He had five brothers and sisters. And between all all six of them, they had over 30 uh, kids. I was the only one who actually went to Vietnam. I had a cousin who went into Special Forces and was a Green Beret, never made it out of Panama. No. Never went overseas, except, well, he went to Panama. Uh, so we were few and far between. And when you spread that few people throughout a country as big as ours, it's, uh, it becomes hard to find people who know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I did. Believe me, I did. Uh, uh, I joined the Vietnam Veterans of America. We, uh, we had a goal to create the, uh, the wall down here at the Capitol. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. But it's quite impressive. I have, yeah. Uh, we, uh, but unfortunately, getting that thing built was sort of the primary goal of that chapter of the organization. When that when we actually got it built, everybody sort of went off in their own direction, and the and the chapter folded because we had nothing to do after that. You know, it, we were like a one horse pony and uh or one one horse wagon when the way when the horse died we didn't have anywhere else to go you know so not a one horse pony that's stupid (laughs) one horse wagon yeah anyway uh so yeah uh the va has gotten tremendously better with uh with dealing with uh, uh ptsd and uh combat trauma uh the uh there are organizations uh, and people are, uh, that are out there that can that are that are helping uh you know we're not the only group that suffers from PTSD anybody i figure anyone who's ever been in the military and served in any kind of overseas combat role has a touch of PTSD of one degree or another the army says i'm 70 percent nuts so i i I take them at their word uh other people are less some people are a hundred uh i thank god i'm not a hundred because uh then i would have tried to kill myself numerous times or become homicidal or 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 and well, I've certainly been, been homicidal at times. I've never been suicidal. <laughs> uh, I'm a very tolerant person. I've had to learn tolerance dealing with idiots my entire life. People who don't understand me or people who don't understand my family or ad or, or, or. nauseum. But I'm a very tolerant person. I will tolerate just about anything. Uh, and there's a big difference between, or I'm sorry, I'm very tolerant, but I'm not patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do not suffer fools gladly. So that's that's just, I'm just telling you about me, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's a coping mechanism for one thing. Anyway, get, getting a little deep there, guy. Yeah, Didn't mean it's, to do that. Just, no,
0: no, no. Um no, I think it's valuable.
1: And I, I, I will I will say this, for anybody who's in the military who has any kind of issues like that, I see it as you're not broken, okay? You might be bent a little bit. And you might need to get things straight, but you're not broken. Uh, Post-traumatic stress, I've discovered through years of counseling and my own reading, is a natural reaction to an unnatural situation. Mm -hmm. Combat is not the normal state of man. It's not. Uh, aggression is, but that's another topic Uh, (laughs) uh, but combat is not and if you were to look throughout history uh, you will find examples of post-traumatic stress clear back uh, there are writings in, in the Civil War Uh, about how people were feeling and it's right out of the 20th century you look you can go back to the revolutionary war and you find writings of guys who were suffering from ptsd you go back to the uh, to the go all the way back to the greeks and there are writings about men who were coming back from combat and it's the same thing it doesn't change Mm mm-hmm it's the way we deal with it that has changed we recognize that it is indeed an issue Uh, world war ii they call it combat fatigue world war one they call it shell shock same stuff Mm -hmm. different name and that's one of my real bugaboos is that people look at it as you're 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 broken you're diseased you're 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 something to be thrown away and that's absolutely not the case you can live with it you can learn to live with it you can learn to make it a part of you but not control you and that's that's where you have to get with that and I'm speaking to you and to anybody else that's ever been in combat you you need to. I'm going to use a real trite phrase. You come to terms with it, mm-hmm. but it's it's important because if you don't come to terms with it, it'll destroy you. And it does. It it will gnaw at you until you do whatever you need to to make it go away. Uh, A lot of guys went into drugs and alcohol. Real, real common. Uh, A lot of self-destructive behavior. Uh, Drugs and alcohol, what you're doing is you're Mm -hmm. self-medicating. Real common. I did it myself. I had to stop drinking. Uh, And it will kill you. Just as deadly as a bullet. But if you if you can have the guts to find the help that you need, whatever it is, whether it's talking to buddies, talking to a counselor, talking to the chaplain, uh, whatever, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you less a man. It doesn't. Because men help each other out and if you see somebody that's suffering then I've always felt that I had an obligation to help them out and it's just I guess it's just the way I am the way I was raised but you I feel I have an obligation to to humanity if, I, I'm, I realize I'm getting very broad here. Uh, you know, see a vet, help a vet. Uh, I've taken guys to the hospital. Uh, I've taken guys to find counselors. Uh, it, it's not a reflection on who you are. It's a reflection on what you did and was done to you. And I, I, I think I've said enough. I'm going to start repeating myself. and Don't need to go there. You hear it once and that's probably more than enough. So, anyway, uh, I'll get off my soap force, soapbox.
0: No, it's fine. I, I think despite the fact that and i'll fully admit that we have a lot more resources today um and people understand ptsd a little better today um and so there's there's more support there i I really do i completely agree with what you said about anybody who's been overseas in combat has some form of they're affected by it in some way and and people still today, even though the resources are there, struggle internally with this. Um, they don't want to go get help for whatever reason. They they struggle accepting that help. And so, what you said I think is incredibly valuable. And um, and uh, I hope you know that that anybody listening to it who needs to get that help uh, takes the time to
1: to do that. Well, it'll um, keep you alive. Yeah. And sane. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had, I've had friends who lost that battle. Uh, they came home, didn't have a mark on them. They never even got a scratch. And six months after they were home, they were dead. One car accident. They weren't drunk. Hmm. No, uh, they they looked at themselves. Well, there wasn't used to be an expression uh, uh, by uh, Ronald Reagan. He called America the shining city on the hill, and in ways. It It is. It's a, it's a beacon of hope for hundreds of millions of people all over the world. They want to be like us. They want to come here. They want to participate in what we have. And unfortunately, for a lot of us who went to Vietnam, The attitude, the public attitude, I'm not talking about any individual, but the public attitude was, you can never be a part of that Shining City. You are defective. Uh, They knew about PTSD, although they didn't call it that at the beginning of the war. They did by the end. But they... We were, we were baby killers. We were murderers. We were, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, puppets of the man. You can go on and on with various appellations that were attached to us. And a lot of guys, unfortunately, and I mean unfortunately bought into it, that they were somehow defective. And defectives can't enter that city on the hill. They uh, they have to go someplace else. They created their own hells, and eventually they they died, either from drug overdoses or putting a bullet through their through their in their in their head, or one car accidents or 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 you name it. They found a way to do it, and over a hundred thousand. Uh, are known to have, uh, have died uh, since coming back from accidents mm-hmm. of one kind or another. Uh, and I include drug and alcohol in that accident term. Out of 3.5 million, a 100,000 died, at least, maybe more. My statistics are several years old. They didn't get the help. Maybe they couldn't ask for it. I don't know. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. You don't have to be defective. You don't have to be broken. There are ways to deal with it, to come to terms with it, To, to Learn to live with it and make it part of your strength and don't see it as a weakness. It's almost as it almost becomes a badge. I have PTSD because of the combat that I've been involved in and the horrors that I've seen have affected me and I survived that you have no idea what I'm talking about lady it almost becomes a badge of honor that to have survived that and overcome it and it can be overcome I've been sober for 30 plus years I drank like a fish uh, yeah, I've used some drugs, uh, but not recently, not in many, many years. It can be overcome. It is survivable. You can come out the other side. And while you may not be the same person that walk in, you can be a better person when you walk out. I, I, I don't know another way to say it.
0: I can't think of a better thought to uh to kind of end on. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation um,
1: well thank you i I enjoyed you coming into my home and talking to me
0: i It was a lot of fun, and um, I, I think a lot of people are going to appreciate everything that you said. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you and you uh, too. yeah and i'll I'll be back by again.
1: Good, good. good. (laughs) Thanks. Maybe I'll have my coffee pot working then.
0: (laughs) I look forward to it. All right. You know, I have to say again what an honor and a pleasure it was having this conversation with Mike. To be invited to his house and to get to talk with him about some of these experiences was incredibly powerful and moving. um, And I really, really appreciate him sharing it with me and with all of you. I hope that uh, any of you listening found it as moving as I did. Thank you for joining me. And as always, you can find pictures and more details on this interview at our website, www.storiesfromeveryday.com. While you're there, feel free to leave any feedback, suggestions, comments you might have. Always love to hear from anybody who might be listening. And I hope you join me next time. Thanks again for listening.